is that of getting kids back to school this fall in BC. There's a great deal of information flying around and misinformation flying around. Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry addressed a few questions uh, on the numbers group and cohort plans for BC's back to school, uh, specifically the numbers. This was at uh, yesterday's briefing. Here's uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's answer to the confusion. What we're saying is that the maximum that children may be exposed to, but we are continuing to have physical distancing, making sure, especially for the younger children, what we did in June, where you you, uh, avoid physical contact, where you ensure that you have distancing between desks, that you do it in a way that children aren't mixing and mingling like we did before, reducing the number of people in the schools. So it is the same as workplaces. It's the same concepts that we are having in every other part of our society that we've opened up, where we maintain distance as much as possible, where we limit the contacts that we have in that setting. But we need to make sure that schools are a priority setting, and we need to be able to give children the um, the instructions, the class, uh, the, the type of teaching that they need in those settings as well. So it is finding that balance of making sure we're doing everything we can to reduce the risk, knowing that this virus is going to be with us and we need to find a way to live with it and still have those absolutely critical learning opportunities for children. Again, that's Dr. Bonnie Henry from her press briefing yesterday. Parents and teachers trying to do the math on risks of going to school versus the risks of keeping kids home from school, the unintended negative consequences or impacts of of protecting children and keeping them home rather than having them in class. We need to talk this through and let's do so with someone who has walked this walk. Uh, Stephanie Higginson, the president of the BC School Trustees Association is with us. Hi, Stephanie. Good to talk to you again. Hi, Jody. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start with what appears to be that confusing piece of this back-to-school puzzle, how some worried parents and some teachers as well are so laser-focused on how we've been told since the beginning of this p- pandemic, no more than 50 for any gathering, and then don't really understand the directives of the learning groups of 60 in elementary school and as high as 120 in high school. Can you put some minds at ease as we, as we put into context sort of what Dr. Henry was speaking to there in the clip? Sure. I mean, I'm happy to try and walk us through this. I think one thing that I want to say is every time I hear someone question that group size versus the learning group size, I actually um, feel very happy about that question because it shows me that society in general, these people are paying attention. Those are the rules, the public health measures we've put in place. So I think these are really good and valid questions for people to be asking, and it makes me feel good that people are um, obeying the rules. And I think that's one of the reasons why BC has done so well is because we have, as a society, really come together to follow those public health measures. And I think one thing that we need to remember about is that those public health group size limits are for one-time events where it's a wide variety of people gathering together and where other control measures are really hard to implement. But, uh, you know, compared to those other settings, the schools have a very consistent set of people that will access the building, and a majority of those those people will be children who are at lower risk of COVID infection, and schools also will have a comprehensive set of safety measures in place, you know, enhanced cleaning and disinfecting protocols, frequent hand washing and sanitizing, 
and a whole bunch of policies that will require staff and students to stay home if they're ill. So other, those other group gathering settings, they don't have those comprehensive measures in place or those consistent people that are coming in and out of the building um, on, on a regular basis. So there's a very different context upon which these learning groups will operate over that 50-person maximum limit that Dr. Henry has put in place for large group gatherings. In listening to the briefing yesterday, because Dr. Henry has asked a number of questions, you're not a scientist, but you are very familiar with uh, our schools and how districts differ from one area to another. And when listening to sort of the plan here is how to take maybe a larger school where kids would interact with hundreds of others and perhaps have, you know, all of the grade eights that are on this level of the building in these five classrooms be the ones that then socially, physically distance and and uh, and do everything they can to to follow all the directives, but are the ones that would arrive at school at the same time and perhaps utilize the cafeteria at once and, and sort of stay in that pod. So if somebody in that group tests positive or gets ill, then the contact tracing is just within that group. Do I have sort of an idea of what the plan is. You know is what, here? you've envisioned it well, and I think it's, it is, um, you know, your, your sort of outside of the box thinking on how to make this work uh, is what's important right now, because I think a lot of the anxiety comes from trying to imagine it working the way schools have always worked. But just yeah. like we are all learning to do in our daily lives, we have to adjust how things happen normally and start inserting all these layers of safety measures into what we're doing. And so I think that um, some of the examples you gave are really good ones that can be utilized in schools. And I think also, you know, at the grade 8, 9, and 10 level, students don't have um, a lot of optional courses. They really yeah. sort of take six of the eight might be the same. So you could group kids into a group of 30 or not even 30, less than 30 because of class size and then the number of staff that have to interact with them. And they could take most of their courses together and then maybe one or two would be with uh, a, a, a group of students who might still be within that 120 size. But but not necessarily the same 30 that they're taking their, their four or five courses with. And I think something else that I've seen uh, talked about is districts going from a linear model, which is where you have all eight courses at once, to either a semester or even a quarter-mester where you're only taking two courses at once. So the students are really, really um, connected to the group that they're learning with because it's only two classes at one time. So there's a ton of options out there. And we just need some time, each district, to look at their own capacity issues and to work very closely with their um, local employee groups to be able to understand what is possible. We're with Stephanie Higginson, the president of the BC School Trustees Association. And Stephanie, we hear a lot about various schools um, working sort of back towards the ability of having uh, physical distancing in classrooms. And one that was really flagged um, last week, late last week, was the Surrey School District that has a, a large number of portables. You talked about being flexible and adaptable and having patience there. Are the working groups now looking district by district at, at what the shortcomings and what needs to be shored up uh, in order to be safe starting September 8th? I think so th- that is work that is still happening at the district level. Um, and, and those districts will sort of 
sit down together with their leadership teams and their principals and vice principals and and you know I'm really hoping employee groups and parent groups and try to identify those pinch pitch points pinch points that you're talking about mm-hmm. and and come up with some creative solutions and then seek some guidance uh, from the province if they need to and you know the issue of portables at Surrey may be uh, solved in terms of bringing in portable uh, washroom facilities I, I know in my district we have portables that have washrooms and washroom facilities in them and to be honest some of the bathrooms are much nicer than the ones that are in some of the old buildings. <laughs> but, yeah, right. uh, so <laughs> there is options and opportunities for portable hand washing stations uh, to be implemented in ways that we may just not be thinking about because we're used to thinking about the school in the traditional way. We know that concerts aren't happening right now, so where are all those hand washing stations that are normally mm. utilized? So we really do need to think about student and staff safety first, but also students in the building learning as much as possible. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, continuing our conversation with the president of the BC School Trustees Association, Stephanie Higginson, is on the line. And Stephanie, prior to the break, we were talking about some of the the numbers that have been discussed in terms of back to school and certainly district to district things vary. And we're, you know, the groups are still at the table by all accounts. Everybody is working very hard to the common goal of getting our kids back to school. And it keeps being reset and should be reiterated uh, time and again, the importance of kids uh, learning in class and, and how this is for now and not forever. But we do need to be flexible uh, looking into Uh, our very near future. September 8th is back to school. For those kids who are immunocompromised or or live with somebody who might be at risk, is there an option on the table for parents to decide to have their kids learn online through the public school system? So the the public school system has always provided options for immunocompromised children. Um, It's you know, these, these things happen to families. It's unfortunate where children get sick and are no longer able to come to school for various reasons. Uh, in some districts, they have a, a term, they're called the hospital and homebound uh, policies. It's, a, you know, not a very warm and fuzzy name. But um, we've always had the ability to uh, accommodate immunocompromised families. And and also, I think it, it this shouldn't just be about immunocompromised. This is about parents' choice. And if p- families are feeling uncomfortable, we have always had options in our public education system for families to take up distributed learning, which is sort of an online version of what happened in June, where you have a teacher assigned to you who helps you through your work, but it's, it's not that synchronous learning that people might be hoping for. Or there's homeschooling, where the parent is really the, the driver of the education and, and works with with um, a network of homeschools to help make sure that your child's meeting the, uh, the requirements for learning through, that are expected throughout the year. And, and parents have the ability to make those choices throughout the year, uh, and they just need to talk to their, um, their local school district about what the, the procedures and policies are around that. Space is sometimes an issue in some of those big, bigger districts that might be more crowded, so it's, it's hard if you take your child out. The ability to put the child back in might be difficult, um, and so that's why those conversations need to be had at the school level uh, to, to make sure that, you know, talk through the concerns that you have and, and see if, if the school's plan addresses those concerns for you and then make the decision that's right for your family. This might be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And when you want to contact your district, are you contacting the school that you would be in the catchment of? Are you contacting the school board? What, how, do you, how do you contact the district? You know, if you want to contact them right now, you're probably contacting the board office. 
uh, those plans, though, at, on the school-by-school school basis aren't, aren't ready yet, and uh, right. they will be at the end of August, and I think principals will be ready to uh, virtually or in a proper social distancing way sit down with parents because we do need to remember that adults do need to practice social distancing, particularly adults who, you know, aren't in that, that close contact of a home together, and, and sit down and walk through concerns with them to hear them and then tell them what the school plan is, and that will start uh, usually about the third week of August is when schools open to start uh, responding to families who have moved, who uh, maybe have concerns that have arisen over the summer that they need to address. So those same types of, of channels will be in place. All right. And what about the concerns of teachers? We've uh, heard, uh, you've likely heard of the petition that has uh, seen quite a number of signatures being added to it with regard to the want to push back uh, on the plan that is on the table from uh, our public, our provincial health officer's uh, office in terms of when school might start. I know we had Terry Mooring on last week, the BCTF president, talking about the concerns surrounding going back to school right after a long weekend. Oftentimes we're talking about extra contacts made and that's sort of the science side of it. And I know, Stephanie, that's not your forte. Um, My question to you is more about how to um, address or manage the concerns of teachers from a practical uh, perspective. What If teachers can't deal with their fears headed back to school on September 8th? Are there other options for them? Well, if, in terms of work and accommodations, there's always um, options in place. And, and, you know, the duty to accommodate is clearly laid out in law. And so I think that those, we, we dealt with that through, through June. And I think that um, people became more comfortable, but families uh, or teachers who do have uh, health concerns um, and things like that, you know, whether it's immediate family or themselves, can talk to the HR department in their local district to, to talk them through what the process will be. Because as you can imagine, it's 60 different collective agreements and it's different everywhere, but there is overarching law that does guide it. So those, um, those are conversations that somebody needs to have either with their local president or uh, with their HR department to figure out what their options are. You know, and in terms of uh, pushing back the start date of school, I think um, I understand the need for us to, uh, to work together and collaborate so that we can make sure that when, when we welcome students back to the building, we're able to do so in a way that everybody feels safe and able to manage with all of the new um, the new processes that are going to be in place. And I think that if we can all sit down together uh, collaboratively and be willing to uh, think creatively, then I think that there are certainly some really... Um, uh, really creative possibilities to address that concern. Uh, so I don't know if it has to be about the start, the delaying the start of school when we have hundreds of thousands of students who haven't been in school since March 13th. But I think that it's a very valid concern that we definitely need to sit down together to find a, a creative compromise solution to to make sure that the schools are safe for our staff and our students when they start when they when they start the school year when that may be. And one more question for you. I know. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. Um, What was your reaction to the announcement yesterday in Alberta regarding mandatory mask use in schools? Well, I continue to put my faith in Dr. Henry. Um, You know, the, the government and the provincial health office has successfully navigated us through this. Uh, I, I know that this is, you know, thoughtful and serious and methodical work that is being done. And so I will continue to trust Dr. Henry on this. And, and the reasons that she has given to the public, I feel, are, are valid and legitimate. And also, I think it's really important for folks to remember that uh, it's very clear in the guidelines that if 
uh, families want their children or if staff want to wear a mask, then that is absolutely okay. Um, but the mandatory masks, Dr. Henry has been clear, she feels, um, you know, with all the other safety measures that are in place, that that is not something that is, um, is needed at schools. And if and when that changes, then we will follow the direction of Dr. Henry. Well said, and thank you so much for your perspective. As always, Stephanie, we really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jody. Have a great day. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and there are a couple of very loud and clear messages from the regular briefings by our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. The big one is stay home if you're sick, no exceptions. The other one is to keep your bubble small. A big part of the small groups, the fewer faces, bigger spaces, is the need for us to keep our contacts to a minimum for tracing purposes in the event that someone we are connected to tests positive for COVID-19. To walk us through the process of contact tracing, we're glad to welcome the Deputy Chief Medical Health Officer at Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, Dr. Mark LeCision. Thanks for being with us. Hi there, no problem. I've been wanting to talk to a contact tracer, somebody who can explain what that job entails since we first heard the term early on in this pandemic. Can you give us an idea of that, um, that army of people that Dr. Henry regularly references when she says that the team is mobilized you know, immediately and looks to, to trace as many people associated with a test case positive as quickly as possible? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first key thing is that COVID-19 is a reportable disease. We have a list of reportable diseases uh, that are listed in the Public Health Act. And so whenever anyone tests positive for that disease, the lab must report it to public health so that we do know about all of the cases. We immediately contact the case to let them know about their result, because obviously if they know they're infectious, there's a less chance that they're going to uh, spread it to other people. You know, we ask them to isolate we provide them support to isolate if needed, if they're from kind of a vulnerable population or they don't have adequate housing. And then we start the process of contact tracing. And so the first thing we want to know is, you know, where have they been over the previous two weeks where they might have been exposed uh, to COVID-19? Because we want to figure out if there's cases in the community that we don't know about. And ideally, you know, we do know where they got COVID either from travel or from a known case or cluster. Um, but there are sometimes cases that we, we can't figure out where they got it from. And then we go, based on this, the onset of their symptoms, we figure out, well, where were they? Who did they have contact with during their infectious period? Because those people are obviously at some risk of developing COVID. And then so we identify those people. We decide how close the contact was. And if it was close contact, then we isolate those contacts. And we that usually is quick enough so that they haven't developed the illness yet and so that when they develop the illness, uh, they don't expose anybody during their, um, incub- during their infectious period. But there'll be other people that we think are at lower risk and we, we won't tell them to isolate. They'll just monitor themselves for symptoms. Sometimes we have to send letters to schools or to workplaces telling people that there has been an exposure. Sometimes we have to do a public communication if we can't reach all of the people directly to say, look, you know, if you were here at this time, you might be exposed. Call us if, if you develop these symptoms and so that we can connect people together. But in general, we try to do this process 
kind of in the background, kind of quietly, so that we can protect people's medical confidentiality. You know, as we're going through this process, we don't tell people who they were exposed to and things like that. We just let them know there has been exposure. Now they need to isolate and, and, and things like that. And um, so generally, the process sort of happens in the background. And it, it happens for all kinds of other communicable diseases as well, measles and tuberculosis and, and things like that. It's just um, because it happens in the background, people are not really aware of it unless they are implicated. Okay, so Dr. Lecision, one of the things that I'm really curious about, is there a difference between isolating and quarantining? Well, we use the term isolation for people who have an illness. So when you have COVID and we ask you to isolate, um, then, you know, that protects others from getting it. The, the term right. quarantine is really, the, you know, it's the same thing. When somebody is quarantined, they're somebody who has been exposed or potentially exposed, and we ask them to isolate so that if they develop the illness, they won't be exposing anybody else. So the, the correct term for that is quarantine, but essentially what people have to do while they're in quarantine is isolate themselves. Right. So if we come back from, let's say we've traveled abroad, you come back to Canada, you got a quarantine for 14 days, the odds of you actually having COVID-19 may be fairly low. It maybe we don't know. That's why you quarantine. But if you came in close proximity to somebody who is a test positive case, who was in that um, incubation period or in that um, that time when they are quite contagious, then that puts you in a position where you're like, okay, the odds of you possibly contracting this because we're we are finding out just how um, easily this is spread. I mean, we, when we talk about the the Kelowna incidents with those two parties, that all of a sudden a thousand people are in isolation and there are numerous test positives for COVID nineteen. So just as we're trying to all become, you know, uh, pocket epidemiologists, like we're just trying to learn on the fly here. If we think that we, or if we get the call from a contact tracer that says, "I need you to isolate," and if you live with three other people, does that mean you're staying in your room? Yeah, you do have to try to stay away from other people, um, but it depends. You know, some people are in situations where they can't necessarily isolate themselves from their other family members, and then we do see transmission within households. And sometimes the exposure has already happened, you know, but, but yeah. before we even get in touch, you know. I, I mean, most of the transmission we see is is within households, uh, because that's where you have the real close contact with other people, you know, and now with the measures we've got in place, you know, the COVID safety plans and staying two meters away and, and, and things like that, you know, you don't really have a lot of close face, face, face-to-face contacts with strangers, but you do have it with your family, you do yeah. have it with your close friends, and then sometimes if you've gone to a party or an event, you know, where there has been people much closer together, and then, you know, we, we can really see a lot of transmission happen, but that generally happens because the, the rules are not being followed closely. We're with Dr. Mark Lecision, who is the Deputy Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. Can you explain to me, doctor, at when, when our provincial health officer, Dr. Henry, says, and we have three cases that are epi-linked, what does that mean? Uh, well, the, our epi-linked cases are basically cases that are close contacts of another case uh, who develop symptoms of COVID, and for whatever reason, they are not tested. Um, and basically, you know, we assume that, you know, that, that, that they are a case, but they're not able to access testing or they refuse testing or things like that. So that's what we call an epilink case. They're cases gotcha. that are linked epidemiologically, but not by a laboratory test. Okay, that's fascinating. What do we know with regard to the serology tests, to the antibody tests that people are clamoring for? More and more people are saying, you know what, I think I had it. I think I've had it. I'd like to be tested. Not available in BC yet, though, right? 
Yeah, it will be available shortly, but not for the purpose that people hope. Um, huh. You know, the CDC has sort of evaluated different assays, and they have now set up the test, and it will we will be able to use it for like serological studies to see what proportion of the population has tested positive or you know has been exposed to the virus. But unfortunately, what we don't know about the antibodies is how long they last, and mm-hmm. or, and importantly, whether they're protective. So. When the test initially comes out, it's going to be limited to public health uh, use where we're investigating outbreak and case and contact situations, but maybe the person has, their symptoms have resolved by the time we get in touch with them, but we still need to know if they were a case. And so then a serological test might help us with that because it it adds to the other information we have about them, you know, that they were exposed in this way and they are in contact with with this person. And so that that helps us interpret the test. But um, if somebody just gets the test randomly, it's hard to know you know, what that means. If, you mm. know, they did they have symptoms before, did they not? Uh, are, are these antibodies a true positive test? Are they indicative of immunity? And so the test actually won't be available to the general public yet until we start learning more about what the antibodies mean. And then at a, right. at a certain point, we learn that the antibodies mean, yep, you're protected uh, to this degree, then at that point, there might be more use for it. Right, wide-ranging testing. If the if the antibodies is protective, then it's a good test to know one way or the other. But it's a false sense of security if somebody just assumes that antibodies means uh, they can go back to normal pre-COVID behaviors at, at a time where that's just uncertain. I'm curious about the actual the the nasal swab test and the testing that is in place. Like when we see the the drive-through test uh, facilities uh, around BC, um, how accurate are those tests for somebody who maybe um, has some kind of symptom, calls 811, is told to go to, to a testing place, gets a negative test? Should they just assume that they do not have the virus and they can go about their uh, typical day-to-day or is isolation for a period of time necessary even after receiving a test? Well, yeah, we, we do recommend if people develop symptoms that they, you know, get a test and isolate until they know the result. Um, you know, if the test is negative, in general, people can come out of isolation sort of once their symptoms resolve sufficiently for them to, to come out of isolation. But there will be some cases that physicians are highly suspicious of, and so they may ask that person to be tested again. Or if the person is already being followed by public health because we're aware of their exposure and we think they are at high risk, we might send them to be tested again. So there are you know, some, some situations where we might have people test again. But if, if the person hasn't had any exposures and isn't a recent traveler and things like that, then, then yeah, they can believe... Um, the negative result. Um, the situation we also run into is sometimes if people don't have symptoms and then they go for testing, uh, they can get a positive result and it's actually a false positive result. And so we've been investing a, investigating a fair amount of those recently because we actually don't have a lot of COVID circulating in the community, which makes the possibility of these false positive results um, a real possibility. And so, you know, in most situations, we don't ask people to go get tested if they're asymptomatic because of this, this possible risk. What would a false, how would a false positive happen with somebody who is asymptomatic? Well, it happens or is that because, the curious? Well, it happens because lab tests are not perfect. So, right, okay, you know, the lab enough. test doesn't get it 100% right, 100%, um, you know, so, and so because there has a certain error rate, you know, if, if there's no COVID actually circulating, then, you know, some of the results you get are just going to be uh, errors with the test procedure. So, um, you know, and, and then so we still have to follow up with those people and isolate them until we can find out. But those people, you know, we need to do an assessment of their symptoms, their exposures, and then basically repeat the test. 
Uh, It is a very complex web of healthcare that we find ourselves in, and we do appreciate you taking some time out of your very busy day to uh, educate us on this topic. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, no problem. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. With almost daily deals rolling through our inboxes from airlines across Canada and news now of Hawaii possibly opening up the doors to travel there this fall as of September 1st, no quarantine required if you want to go to Hawaii from Canada. It kind of got me thinking about it all. So I I penned a piece at the orca.ca sharing my concerns with the risks involved with travel during COVID-19. Uh, have have a read there, theorca.ca. It's causing a bit of a stir. I've got some serious pushback, interestingly enough, on social media. And then I go to their bios and oftentimes they work for airlines. Go figure. So this is not an anti-travel industry piece. It is a piece about how this virus is moving around the globe on planes and trains and automobiles and ships. Oh my goodness, don't get me started about the cruise ships. We all know that this is a fact. Viruses move around by people. They don't have legs. We give them legs. And when we travel, we can spread it further. Airlines removing physical distancing in the name of making more money seems a bit wrong. And yet that is something that was done recently. The middle seat is now up for sale. Full flights are part of the program. Seems odd, right? At the very least, we should be able to access uh, the manifests for contact tracing, right? Well, apparently that's a struggle. Our provincial health office is even Dr. Bonnie Henry is frustrated. Listen. And it, it would shock you to see what we get from um, from the airlines when we request a flight manifest. So they, of course, um, obtain information to for booking purposes and for understanding, um, you know, exactly what price that seat. And they can tell you what price, how much anybody paid for that specific seat. So the information is being collected for a different purpose. And when we need that information to find out who's around, all they know is it's somebody who paid $66 for that seat. (laughs) Um, So we get information that may be related to who booked the ticket. So if you're booking on points, it may be um, whoever uh, owns the points, that name will be on it. We very rarely get accurate information about contacts, even where people live. So it makes it a challenge to know if we need to um, uh, provide information to somebody in another province or if that person's out of country, where they're staying when they are here. So it really is a disconnect in the system. And this is something that we've made recommendations to uh, uh, Transport Canada and to our our federal counterparts. It seems like a simple fix, right? A detailed manifest for contact tracing and fast follow-up. Why is that not happening? Why isn't that already happening six months into a pandemic? These and and many other airline-related questions are for the federal government to answer. You can have your say as we we are going to open up the phone lines in the next segment. Uh, But first, let's talk this through with Gabor Lukic, who is an air passenger rights advocate. Gabor, nice to talk to you again. How are you? Good afternoon. Thank you for being back. I'm uh, I'm really on this. I, I'm a nervous traveler. I'm a nervous flyer. I love to travel, however, and the idea of going to Maui uh, again makes me happy, but not during a pandemic with the current setup on air travel. As an air passenger rights advocate, what are you seeing during this pandemic? In the current situation, I would not consider it safe to travel. I would travel by air only if it is absolutely vital Uh, if there was a dying relative at the other end that I'm actually able to help with my presence. 
Um, the airlines, I understand they're struggling. I have sympathy for that. At the same time, what the airlines are doing is putting passengers at risk, as I understand it, and they are not even doing the basic effort for contact and- tracing. So I'm seeing two problems with the airlines. First is a middle seat issue, which we have identified. That uh, act of the airlines now selling the middle seat close to doubles the risk of contracting COVID-19 on a flight. And the second issue is the contract tracing. I need to add something there that listeners may not be aware of, that the airline genuinely may not have the passenger's contact information. So the problem is a systemic one and not necessarily that the airlines are being evil about this. However, you're quite right that in the time that have passed since the COVID-19 issue began, they should have been implementing a solution. Normally what happens is that when you enter a reservation, a travel agency makes a reservation for you, they get all the notifications, their information ends up on your PNR, your passenger name record, And for you, they have the name and maybe possibly your phone number, and that's it. Under normal circumstances, this is perfectly reasonable, maybe perfectly reasonable, although I would say they still should have some information for the passenger themselves. The problem, the disconnect happens that the airlines have not put in place additional measures to collect additional personal information for health purposes that is necessary. For example, when you fly to the U.S., even before COVID-19, you had to provide additional personal information where you would be staying possibly, depending on which, which uh, form you're filling out, certainly your passport number for international travel. They were asking for all this in advance. So in the current situation, similar measures could and should be taken to ensure that airlines have some limited personal information about passengers who travel with the airline. I agree with you so much on this because, I mean, as a traveler, we're constantly plugging in our personal information for security reasons. I mean, we take off our shoes, we're padded down, we empty our pockets, we show our passport, or we prove who we are by way of some form of identification, collecting that information. And now, most often, you can do that with a scan at a kiosk. It doesn't even require you know, heavy lifting in terms of uh, collection and and data entry. Uh, Like you said, there should be a a tech answer to this problem that could provide the root of this, which is being able to track down somebody who might be on one of, I don't know, the 36 flag flights that we've had since June 3rd here in British Columbia, both international and domestic, that had at least one test case positive COVID-19 flyer on board. I, I very much agree with you. But we also have to appreciate that as much as I cherish my privacy, if you want to fly at a time when there is a pandemic, you may have to give up a little bit more of your privacy than usually you are used to. And it doesn't sit well with anyone um, because I generally don't want the airlines or the government to to know much about me. And that's a a fair position normally. But these are not normal times, which not... Keep it that way, so that should only be a temporary measure, and and there should be some safeguards to ensure that they remain temporary measures. Uh, However, I would say if someone really doesn't want their basic personal information for health purposes only to be uh, stored this way, perhaps they should hire a private jet. 
Right. It is a first world problem to really want to travel without having to give up your phone number. I mean, we're doing that at restaurants now for contract tracing, contact tracing, that is, that is such a key to keeping this virus at bay. And it, it's interesting to watch the likes of scientists like Dr. Bonnie Henry frustrated and, and that, believe it or not, was her frustrated voice, trying to talk to the federal government about the need for this to be put into place as soon as possible. Dr. Henry's one of Canada's most capable medical experts and also communicators. I absolutely admire her skill to explain complex issues in a very clear, precise, yet understandable way to the public. So uh, I would very much hope that the federal government is going to heed on her advice and warning. Having said that, if that's not the case, and I fear it may not be the case, it may be time for the province to take some steps to protect the health of its public, for example, by uh, imposing restriction on people who are coming in by air and conditioning entry on those people as they enter, providing contact information as a condition. Which we have seen happen in other jurisdictions uh, like New Zealand and Australia and others who have basically said forced 14-day quarantine for everybody, anybody moving around. That's what is going to happen. Which would also be possibly a, a um, reasonable move in the circumstances. Um, but even a less drastic move just by requiring everybody who is entering the province to provide clear information about which flights they have taken and their contact information would be reasonable in the circumstances, possibly as a trade-off. Either you go to a quarantine or you provide this information. Hmm. That's a good that's a good solution. I appreciate you taking some time to talk it through with me. I feel less angsty about it because I think there are some pretty simple answers to what shouldn't be that difficult of a question when it comes to traveling in a time of a pandemic. So Gabor, thank you as always. Thank you very much for having me. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. There's an article right now in the Financial Post that outlines how government is the reason for housing affordability issues. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation quoted in that piece. It's a fascinating read, really. The numbers and references in the article are all about Toronto in that particular column. And we wanted to break it down BC style. So uh, we connect now with good friend of the program, Chris Sims, the BC director of the Canadian Taxpayer Federation. Hey, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm so glad to have you. It's always a good conversation when we connect. And I wanted to talk about this article in the Financial Post. Fascinating read because oftentimes the buck is passed when it comes to housing affordability issues. Who's at fault? The big bad developers to blame. And and no, it's 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 people not being able to pay enough when land is at a premium. No, it's another. But when you look at the taxes and the transfer fees and the living, I bought my first property of my life in my late 30s in Ontario. And I was absolutely floored. Almost half of what I had saved was going to fees and taxes that were payable to the government. Had I known that in advance, I probably would not have purchased the home. Isn't it staggering? Uh, I had a similar experience and I was buying in a very, very rural, uh, low income area of Nova Scotia. So not not the same comparability, but the same types of taxes and development fees quite often hitting every area in Canada. And I know, you know, I'm out here in the Fraser Valley. I know a lot of people uh, in BC can't afford to live in Metro Vancouver because of the ridiculous housing costs. And we know that it's complicated. There isn't one it answer. Is. But our point here with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is these development fees and taxes and the government, they're not helping. 
they're making it worse and they're making it uh, much more expensive than it has to be. And so you're right. Uh, my colleague, Jasmine Moulton, she's the Ontario director for the CTF. Uh, she did some number crunching and it was quite staggering that it's, she was saying that the average amount of development fees and taxes in the greater Toronto area was adding a cost of $164,000 to the average condo. And I know uh, our common friend, Jordan Bateman, my predecessor here at the CTF here in BC, he did some number crunching for us a few years ago now in Vancouver. And he found that it was costing a heck of a lot of money here too, at a rate of 37% more that that development and housing were subject to 107 taxes, fees and levies in Vancouver. 107 different ones. Seven? That's crazy pants. bananas. I know. And it's, this is just a couple of years ago. And so I'm busy trying to see if I can update this. I'm kind of looking through splayed fingers, though. I'm scared there's going to be even more than 107. So the point is here is they're not helping. And then to add insult to injury, they went and floated that trial balloon about 10 days ago saying, hey, maybe we'll put a tax on your principal residence sale. Like, that's exactly what homeowners don't want to hear. Right. And that's that study, right? That That's what piqued everybody's interest. I heard Michael Campbell uh, talking to Ozzy Jurek about this on Money Talks, uh, in, where it was like, okay, we're just, we're just going to do some research on whether mm-hmm. or not taxing your primary residence, the, the last bastion of tax safety for the everyday Canadian is their primary residence, you know, and, and, right. and not having... Uh, your uh, proceeds of of your long and <laughs> and hard fought <laughs> earnings and your primary residence and and it just feels like even as a report it feels like that is pending doom how are we going to pay for all of what we are spending in this pandemic if not adding to absolutely everything maybe not for you know your your and my taxes but certainly for those in 2050 they're going to be just exactly. buried in this yeah. Yes. Uh, to put a to put a real number on it, uh, we literally we have a a debt clock that we drag around behind a pickup truck. Sometimes we literally have to add a number to it. Like we physically don't have room on the debt clock anymore because the federal debt wow. is going to hit a trillion dollars. That's a one with twelve zeros after it within the next six months. And so we know that a hungry government deep in debt is going to be looking under the couch cushions. And when the CMHC puts a quarter million dollars into a study that will consider taxing the sale of your principal home, the house you live in right now, they're not just doing that for fun. We also need to point out that the group spearheading this study out of UBC has previously described a lack of a tax on principal incomes as a loss to government. They call it a $7 billion loss to government. That's their approach. That's who's helping out with this study. So who's going to keep filling those coffers if nobody can afford to live or, or survive in major metropolitans? I mean, especially with this mass exodus that we're seeing in this pandemic when people are all like, well, I'm working from home. Why am I paying so much to live downtown close to what was my head office? It's, it's upsetting, isn't it? And so this is why yes. we are always urging a multi-pronged approach of, number one, get your spending in order. This is why Mm -hmm. we need to go line by line through every level budget. If it's municipal, provincial or federal, there's no small items anymore. They need to cut everything they possibly can to get back to basics. Start there. 
start there. You know get what? Your, I ha- get your I have- spending under control. I have to leave it there with you, Chris. Uh, I'm up against the clock, but you know what? That's the okay. perfect punctuation on this is opening up and, and, and transparency in the budget so the line items can be seen and we can collectively as taxpayers decide what we can do without in the name of getting back on track. Always appreciate your, your time and input, Chris Sims. Likewise. Thank you. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and it's always good to connect with Jason Kindrichuk. He's a good friend of the program, assistant professor and Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, and sort of a touchstone to be able to talk through some of the pieces of the COVID-19 puzzle when they get all sciencey. Is that a word, Jason? Am I allowed to words sciency? <laughs> uh, listen, virologists make up names and words all the time, so just go for all it. All the time. Let's do it. Well, that's what I love about you is because you can manage uh, when our callers call in and have a question, you very respectfully guide them to the facts. And I'm, I love following you on Twitter. I have to say, I highly recommend following Jason Kindrachuk with a K on Twitter because you retweeted something today that made me laugh so hard. It's Dr. Uh, McFunny uh, that did oh, a thread yes. about well, Oh my! <laughs> Seriously? And so funny and not snarky and yet a little bit are you kidding me you know yes the virus has been isolated yes SARS-CoV-2 can be ID'd by the PCR yes the pandemic is real no Bill Gates did not plan it no it was not made in a lab no it's not a cold or the flu like these sorts of real basics surrounding COVID-19 still for those who want to be conspiracy theorists they're perpetuated and, and ever louder it seems each day yeah, I, I get the sense that, you know, for most people, uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's, it, it's, it's extremely stressful, uh, whether you understand this stuff or, or you don't. And, and I think that's where a lot of this stems from is just trying to make sense of this any way possible. So, you know, I, I, I get sometimes where conspiracy theorists are, are coming from, but at the same time, you know, we, we need to rely on facts to, to get us through this. So we're going to open up the phone lines in the next segment so people can call in. If you want to call, you got a question for Jason Kindrachuk. He's a scientist. He is literally Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. This is his business. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. But first, I get a couple of questions here. Watching this morning as our federal government announced vaccine procurement uh, with Moderna and Pfizer, right? What are we looking at here? What did they really announce today? So what they're announcing is that they have basically pinpointed uh, two vaccine platforms uh, that they are trying to to procure. So basically trying to buy um, doses ahead of time uh, kind of putting faith in into these two vaccines is one that will likely kind of meet the smell test for for significance and protection as they move from uh, you know through phase three trials and and ultimately hopefully get licensed. So I think it shows that you know Canada is uh, is basically again taking a lead in trying to identify vaccines uh, that that would be disseminated to up to our general public um, once they are licensed. But I think it also shows that they're also not just basically banking on a single vaccine that they're looking at, essentially multiple, because ultimately some of these vaccines that are in advanced trials could fail. So I think that we are where we need to be. Um, how that's going to play out in terms of being able to get everybody immunized, I think, is, is the million-dollar question that we're all waiting to find out. 
Um, but uh, I think that that it, it shows basically good judgment that, that we're moving forward with trying to make sure that, that Canada has access uh, to, to vaccines as early as possible. And we've also already, uh, it was announced, I guess, a couple of weeks ago that the the um, syringes were already purchased en masse, yes. two for every Canadian, to get ahead of that, because we, we've already found ourselves behind when it came to the PPE. So some lessons are being learned from science and from scientists and, and saying, we're going to need these things in order to give people the vaccine when it's ready. Yeah, and, and ultimately we we always need to to be adaptable, right? So we, you know, I yeah. think we got caught a little bit with with PPE in the first uh, round, which was something that that I don't think anybody had assumed that that we would uh, that we would see. Um, no. And now I think we're we're hopefully we're learning from some of the uh, the foresight that, uh, that that we need to have. Okay, phone lines are open 604-280-9898 and star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone star 9898 on your cell. Uh, Jason, what are some of the the symptoms that people are going to be looking for with regard to COVID-19 that we're, we're sort of laser focused now on a couple things, right? We're focusing on staying home if we're sick no exceptions, and contact tracing, keeping our, our groups and our bubbles small so that if we are sick, we can look at and find everybody that we've been in contact with over the last 14 days. So when it comes to sy- symptoms, is it any symptom of anything right now that that is a flag for COVID? Well, it's a great question, right? And I think we're still trying to figure out exactly what, you know, what those kind of key symptoms are um, across different populations for, for COVID. And ultimately, when we look at different uh, emerging infectious diseases, often a lot of these diseases present very similarly in the early stages of disease. And we basically say they look like influenza illnesses, which basically means, you know, you might have a cough, you may feel a little bit run down, um, you may have a bit of a fever, you may have a bit of a headache. And essentially what, what most people are looking for is, is any deviation from, from feeling normal, especially right. if it's not just one symptom, but if it's a few multiple symptoms that are showing up. And, and I think we need to get people to, um, you know, not basically kind of tough it out as, as I think those of us that grew up in the prairies are kind of apt to do. Um, when we notice something that is, seems a little bit off, uh, you know, this year, especially, we, we need to consider the fact that this could be a sign that, uh, that, that, that we could potentially be sick and, and start to look into the potential precautions that we need to take. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill this week, and I'm chatting with our good friend Jason Kindrachek, Assistant Prof, Canada Research Chair at the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, opening up the phone lines for your questions. Do you have a fact about COVID-19 that you want to clear up? Are you confused about anything? Now's your chance. 604-280-9898 is our number, or star 9898 on your cell. Let's uh, go to our first caller, Helen in Surrey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for calling. Hi. Yeah, I have a question and it concerns masks. From the very beginning, we've been told that masks are worn to protect others and that if we all wore masks, we, we would uh, certainly lower the, the curve. But what I'm curious about is the fact I'm, I'm pretty certain that most people that are wearing those masks are doing so primarily to protect themselves and secondarily to protect others. And in that case, why wouldn't wearing a mask in addition to preventing spread of your own germs also uh, limit the amount of germs you get from other people? That's a really good question, Helen. Thank you for calling. Jason? It's a great question, Helen. And one of the reasons being that ultimately what we see is that people that wear masks, 
if they uh, if they cough or um, if they um, you know, have any sort of uh, you know, respiratory droplets that, that leave from their throat in high amounts, um, that the mask will basically stop some of those from being able to pass through. The converse, though, is not necessarily true. That you know, if we look at particles that are able to make it through the mask, um, people that are wearing masks that are purely just protective in nature can potentially still get infected. We we think that it likely lowers um, that that amount uh, or that uh, that frequency from occurring, um, but it is still by far and away to try and protect uh, others from from people that might be infected. Because ultimately, with COVID nineteen, there is stronger evidence that, that is nearly coming out probably every few days to suggest that people that, um, you know, that are in the pre-symptomatic stages of, of disease can spread virus. So at a time when uh, they don't show any overt symptoms of illness. So ultimately what we're hoping is that if, if essentially if everybody wears masks, um, even if they go on to develop illness at a later time point, that it will stop them from, from being able to, to ultimately spread uh, virus in high amounts. Can you help debunk some of the um, rumors surrounding mask use and people who say that uh, you're breathing in um, bad air when you're wearing your mask or that it it reduces your ability to absorb oxygen? All of these all of these sort of I'm going to say conspiracy theories again, because people really (laughs) want to. There's a group that are anti-maskers that are holding events that encourage hugging. I mean, it's just like, come on, guys. It, it, it's so frustrating, right? Yeah. Um, so, so ultimately, what, what we understand about masks, and, and listen, I, I will go back to, to the easiest example. If we think about when we have ever been in a hospital or been in a, a healthcare, um, if a physician or a nurse is wearing a mask, what we don't see year after year are high amounts of, of nurses and physicians uh, or folks that are working in healthcare settings that are dying because of uh, asphyxiation from carbon dioxide. Um, so, oh, you know, it, it really is that example, but we, we do see that there are any number of, uh, you know, tweets or, or threads and, and Facebook memes that are coming out saying that, oh, it lowers your pH and you become more acidic and you're not able to get enough oxygen. All this stuff, ultimately, we, we can breathe through masks. We've been, we've been doing this for ages. It is uncomfortable. I have been wearing one for the majority of the day um, here. It is not something that, that I necessarily enjoy doing. But I also know that I have to do my part to stop spread. So all, all of the concerns as far as health complications for wearing masks, um, we, we have not seen those in, in the general population. Now, there may be people that have things like COPD or advanced respiratory issues um, that, that may uh, have difficulty wearing masks. But to be fair, those people are in vulnerable groups already and likely should not be outside of the general public anyway. So for masks, uh, listen, the, the, the simplest thing and, and probably the, the most human thing that we can do right now to stop spread of this virus is, is consider wearing a mask when we just can't keep social distancing uh, at the level that we need to. 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you have a question. Star 9898 is an easy free call on your cell. Star 9898. Rita and White Rock, you're up next. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Jody. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, perfect. Uh, my daughter had um, episodes last week with uh, fiery burning pain, like electrical fire burn all over her skin. It was awful. Ended up going to hospital for it. But um, anecdotally, on the internet, there's other people that are 
thing. They have that and they in the U.S. and um, that they were then tested for COVID and had it. I'm just wondering if the doctor knows anything about that. Um, and the reason I'm asking is because my brother experienced in London, England, the um, dry, the no smell, no taste about two weeks before it came out on the news. Oh, yeah, it's, so it's, great, it's a great question, Rita. And, and listen, I, I will say up front, I, listen, I'm a PhD in virology, so uh, I, I'm not a physician and, uh, you know, and, and I'm paid accordingly for, for not being a physician. Um, at the end of the day, we're, we're still learning about, about different symptoms for COVID. And across millions of cases now, we are seeing um, some symptoms that, that are found in, in very low uh, percentages of cases um, that, that seem to be very different from what, what we see across the masses. Um, we, we have seen some p- people that have talked about an itchiness or, or redness of tissues, but, but it doesn't seem to be common or kind of the more common symptoms that, that are seen with this respiratory virus. So ultimately, you know, it, again, we go back to this idea that if there is something that seems abnormal and you've been in close contact with somebody that either was displaying symptoms of respiratory illness or ended up testing positive, then, then it is something to, to ultimately get checked out. Um, if it's something where, you know, th- this doesn't fit the bill and this person has had no contact with somebody that, that likely had COVID, now you can start to distinguish that, that maybe this, this is actually something very different. There have been some really interesting um, sort of aha moments over the course of the last six months when people said, oh, it's just that it's just like a cold or it's kind of like the flu. But then you hear about some of the absolute debilitating, the blood clots, the the brain fog, the issues that are, that go so far beyond. Like it seems this virus seems to manifest itself so differently in different people that it's hard to even really pin down sort of fitting that square peg in any round hole in science at this point? Are we still at the point where we're trying to figure it all out? I think to some extent. I mean, you know, I I was talking to uh, somebody here uh, actually in our lab, Sylvie, earlier today about this. And and really, you know, when when we look at COVID-19, the question becomes, is it really behaving differently than other coronaviruses? Or is it right. the sense that other coronaviruses like SARS or MERS, we just did not see in millions of cases, but only in thousands of cases. And that's why we're seeing you know, all these nuances that, that are being presented. So I don't think we're, we quite know what the answer is yet, um, but we're, we're also learning in real time uh, as this virus is moving through our population. So I, I, you know, kind of stay tuned, I think, is, is my best suggestion. And, and we will try to get as many answers as we can uh, out, out to folks as quickly as possible. We'll stay tuned and stay connected with you, Jason. As always, a pleasure to uh, be able to bounce these questions off you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jody. Keep well.